Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Julie, for reading that text. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, my name is Cassidy Hastings. I'm one of the past- pastors here, and I uh, get the fun passage that you just heard read this morning. It's uh, nice and fluffy, uh, but yeah, so if you're not already there, go ahead and turn there, uh, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. If you're uh, watching online, you can uh, throw that into the Google search bar and just do Hebrews 10 ESV, and it'll pop up there. Just scroll down to verse 26. Um, and if you're here in person and you don't have a Bible, uh, just grab the Pew Bible. It's on page uh, 584 uh, in there. And if you don't have a Bible at all, take that with you. We want you to have that as a gift. Um, we believe that God, as Pastor Carl said, speaks through his word. And so we want you to have his voice uh, through his word in your life. How many of you have seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? If you haven't, uh, it, it chronicles Indiana Jones, and uh, it's one of the, the three good movies, um, not the later ones that were made. I don't know what those are, but uh, he's, uh, he's going with his dad and other people to find the Holy Grail. They're on this search to find the Holy Grail. They finally find the, the location, and it's in this uh, kind of thing that's hewn out of the rock, and, and he has to go through these different tests in order to get to the grail room, and he, he passes those, and he arrives in the grail room. There's a, the grail knight who is there guarding all the grails, um, and there's like shelves of, of like probably a hundred different types of grails there. Soon after his arrival, he did all the hard work, and the bad guy shows up, and, uh, and he's like looking around, and he's like, oh, there's so many different grails, and he says, which one is it? And the grail knight says, you must choose, but choose wisely, for, the true, for as the true grail will bring you life, the false grail will take it from you. So he's like, I don't know which one to choose. So he asks the, the, the lady that's with them to say, she says, I'll choose for you. So she picks one. He goes over, he dips it in the little cistern of water. He takes a drink from it and everything appears to be fine. But then he goes, <gasps> And then you know what happens next. If you see the movie, if you've seen the movie, he uh, he's like, "What is happening?" And then he like disintegrates. He like he like just kind of melts in front of the the people there, and uh, kind of turns to like gets his skeleton gets thrown against the wall, and then he turns to a pile of dust. And in one of the best, I, I think it's one of the best lines in cinema history. What does the Grail Knight say? He chose poorly. It's an understatement. He chose poorly. So Indiana picks up a different grail, dips it in the water, drinks from it, and he looks over and he says, you have chosen wisely. And so he goes out, he, uh, he saves his dad who had been shot. Uh, the grail water saves his dad and then they all ride off into the sunset. Well, Elsa doesn't, but uh, they ride off into the sunset with their, um, their friends and everything uh, with all their friendships intact. And while it's just a Hollywood movie and... That's, there's a lot of inaccuracies, just FYI. Like, I'm not advocating the historical significance of that. Uh, one of the things I think it does point out is that there are some choices that have some life and death consequences to them. Some choices, like where we go to lunch, where you, what car you buy, those are fairly minor. 
But there are other choices that we have in our life that have life and death consequences. In today's passage, we'll see the author warning his audience of a critical choice that, if taken, will lead a person to stand completely helpless and hopeless before a holy and just God. If you want the big idea for the message today, it's this. Judgment is the only outcome for those who reject Jesus' sacrifice. Judgment is the only outcome for those who reject Jesus' sacrifice. Last week, uh, if you were here, uh, Pastor Glenn uh, kind of expounded on the couple of verses before this. It was an uncomfortable message, right? And, and I think we should be okay with the Word of God making us uncomfortable. <laughs> because if it's not, then we need to ask ourselves some things. So there are times when the Word of God makes us uncomfortable. This week's message is going to be pretty, it's not going to ease up. It's going to get more intense. So buckle up, we're going to dive in. Uh, but the author has been expounding on these different spiritual realities under the new covenant. He's been talking about Christ's sacrifice and his blood and his high priestly ministry. And he's comparing that and saying that is so much better than any Old Testament sacrifice or high priest. In the last three weeks, we've been kind of, the author kind of shifts into saying like, okay, these are these spiritual realities if that is the case, and we believe this, these are some practical things that we need to be doing in order to do that. And so if you look back in the previous verses, if you see the words, let us, there's three different things that he's saying, let us do. So in verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If, if this is who Jesus is and what he's done, let us together draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The second thing he says is, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let's hold fast to Christian hope. Let's not abandon that and go and try to put our hope in anything else. And then last week we saw, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, but encouraging one another. All of these things are practical, rubber-meets-the-road applications of the reality of Jesus and who He is and what He's done. Why is a regular gathering of believers necessary for the health of a believer? It's because life is hard. <laughs> Suffering is real. And it can be tempting as circumstances increase in difficulty to give up on our faith. But this is increasingly important. As he ends the verse from last week, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as the author is encouraging his readers to persevere in their faith, I can picture him kind of fast forwarding in his mind all the day, all the more as we see the day approaching, this day of judgment. And what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is kind of this, this what happens on that day. This week, we're going to be looking at what happens if people reject Jesus' sacrifice and then next week, come back because it's going to be a better, it's going to be a more encouraging message too. But, but the other alternative to that is persevering, a persevering faith that endures suffering, that endures hardship, that manifests itself in that. In today's passage, the author is going to give a very, very sobering warning of what happens if we don't persevere in our faith. Not because our salvation depends on our own efforts and actions, but because the absence of actions, of these actions that we're going to hear about, indicates a much, much scarier reality at play. 
The first thing that we see in the, in the first few verses in our passage is that at the heart of continued deliberate sin is a denial of Jesus's sacrifice. At the heart of deliberate continued sin is a denial of Christ's sacrifice. He says, for, what for? For is because what he was just talking about. If we go on sinning, who's he talking to? This is going to be really uncomfortable for us this morning because he is talking to believers. If we go on sinning deliberately, what is he talking about? Well, look, he just said, hey, listen, these are the things we should be doing. We should be holding fast to our confession of hope. We should be drawing near with confidence. We should be assembling. We should be considering how we can stir one another to love and good deeds. But if we're not doing those things, that is sin. So instead of drawing near to God, they may have drifted away and moved away from drawing near to God, moved away from Him. Instead of holding fast to Christian hope, they kind of loosen their grip. They're not holding fast. They're loosening their grip and putting their hope in other things. Instead of considering how to stir one another up, to love and good deeds, and instead of faithfully meeting regularly with other believers, they didn't really think about it. They didn't consider it. They stopped meeting. It's not a big deal. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what is this talking about? The truth of the person and work of Jesus. This is going back to the, the stuff that he's been expounding on for this whole book so far. How Christ's sacrifice is so much better than any Old Testament sacrifice. How his high priestly ministry far exceeds that of any Old Testament priest. How his blood is so much better. The blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse, but Jesus' blood can. These people have received this truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. If we've been given this truth, if, if his audience has been given this truth, then their lives should be characterized by the things that he's been talking about, the let us. But what if it isn't? What if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This actually harkens back to, in Numbers 15, under the Old Covenant, uh, God is kind of saying, hey, this is how you should live. This is what you should do. And he's kind of outlining, if you have, if you have done unintentional things, these are the offerings that you need to do. Like, these are the offerings that you bring in order to, like, when you are aware that you have sinned against God, do this, and then that will temporarily cleanse your sin. But there's a, a passage in Numbers 15 that says there's a, another type of sin that's an intentional sin. Listen to what it says in Numbers 15, 29 through 31. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native of, among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, what that means is kind of like a shaking of a fist at God, like I know what's going on and I'm doing it anyway. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, 
and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word, despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So under the old covenant, if somebody intentionally sinned against God with a shaking of a fist, they were to be cast out. They were to be put out without mercy. This isn't an accidental or unintentional uh, choice. It's a conscious choice to reject the gospel. And in the passage today, it's a conscious choice to reject the gospel and reject the truth of Christianity. The Mosaic law and the Old Testament sacrificial was good at the time, but it's nothing compared to the new covenant. We'll see him kind of expand on this a little bit more as he kind of shifts and saying like, if this is how it was in the old covenant, how much more shall it be in the new covenant? If people sin deliberately under the Mosaic law, knowing full well what they were doing, they were essentially rejecting the entire law and there was no animal or grain sacrifice that they could offer to atone for that sin. But now, what he's telling his readers, now, having received the truth of something much better than the Mosaic law, if you intentionally rejected this new and better truth, you were essentially rejecting Jesus himself. Now, all sin is rebellion, okay? So all sin is rebellion, and at one level, all sin is a choice. No matter if it's intentional or unintentional, it's a violation of God's commands, and in no way should we excuse things or kind of grade things. All sin is rebellion. There are times where you know that you shouldn't do something, but you do it anyway, right? That sin is a sin, and it's an intentional choice. But the mark of a believer when they sin is listening to the conviction of, a whole, of the Holy Spirit, confessing that action of sin, and turning away from it, repenting as you move forward. There are other sins that we struggle with, maybe more regularly than others. And there are periods of time that we go through where we have seen more success. The, the Bible talks often about walking by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so we have periods of time where we kill that sin in our lives by the power of the Spirit, but then other periods of times where we choose instead to feed our flesh and give in to temptation. Those times are still choices. Those are still sin, and they should not be excused or nurtured. But again, the mark of a believer when they sin is to confess that, listen to the conviction of the Spirit, confess that, and turn away from it, to repent from it. In both of these cases, the believer is willing to call sin, sin, and to repent. This is not giving us an excuse to keep on sinning, but what this passage is talking about is receiving the truth of the gospel and high-handedly continuing to sin without remorse. You've heard the truth, but by your actions, you are showing that there is in fact no spiritual life in you. There is no fruit of obedience, of repentance. Actions, external actions reveal internal beliefs. 
If the actions you regularly see on the outside are dead, if you continually sin deliberately, how are you calling yourself a follower of Jesus? As Pastor Glenn talked about last week, if, you're an, if you say you're an avid skier, but you've never put a pair of boots on or gone to a mountain or any of that, are you really... It, I, th- I think there's a legitimacy to question the claim that you're a skier. True conversion isn't just shown because you prayed a prayer 20 years ago. True conversion is demonstrated over time by the fruit of persevering faith, repentance, and obedience. Continual, unrepentant sin for someone who knows the gospel reveals that they don't really believe in Jesus' sacrifice. And if you reject Jesus, there is no longer a sacrifice that can save you. All that's left for you is death and judgment. So imagine that scientists were able to figure out how to harness the power of the sun. And they were able to build this device that uh, kind of would be able to direct all the heat, all the energy, all the power of the sun in a single direction. And um, I mean, the the surface of the sun is like 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, And so they they build this device that um, that can shoot all of this energy in one particular direction. And then you find yourself standing in front of that device. There's nothing you can do and it is going to be turned on. You have no way to protect yourself. But then someone gives you a shield that can absorb the heat and the energy. Did you do anything to get that shield? No. But you can hold that, and you can have that deflected. All you have to do is hold it up. If we reject Jesus' sacrifice... It's like saying, I don't need it. I'm good on my own. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the only judgment-absorbing shield that can withstand the white-hot wrath of God that is coming for sin. I love the song by City of Light that says, uh, it's called Jerusalem, and there's a, a line, a couple of lines in it that says, See him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing, Dust that form the watching crowds takes the blood of Jesus. Feel the earth is shaking now. See the veil is split in two. And he, Jesus, stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. The author has been talking about how much better Jesus' sacrifice is than anything in the Old Testament. And rejecting that sacrifice means that you are on your own. There's literally no other sacrifice available. You are exposed and you are helpless. You have rejected, as Acts 4 says, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. So what happens? Only judgment remains. God will judge those who reject Christ's sacrifice. Verse 27 For if we go, well, it says, uh, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There is no third option 
according to the Bible. When you hear the good news of Jesus, when you receive the knowledge of the truth, there are two possible responses. Repentance and faith or rejection and judgment. And to illustrate the severity between uh, what the law was under Moses and what it is now, the author does this comparison. He's been doing this often, but oftentimes he says, this is what the Old Testament sacrificial system did, but Jesus is better, right? So it's like a, this is the old, this is the new, and the new is better. But what he does here is he says, this is the old, this is the new, and the new is worse. The judgment under the new covenant is worse. Listen to what he says in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this, this refers back to Deuteronomy 17, where under the Mosaic law, if two or three witnesses came forward and said that you broke the law, you broke the first commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, the judgment was that you were to be taken outside of the city and stoned to death. That's a pretty intense consequence, right? You were to be taken outside the gates and stoned to death. It wasn't just about breaking a single commandment. It was about despising the law. Rejecting God's law meant rejecting God himself. And so therefore, judgment was swift and forceful. No mercy was given. The person must be executed. And yet, under the old covenant, as intense and severe as that punishment is, It's nothing compared with the punishment that is coming under the new covenant for those who reject Jesus' sacrifice. Listen to the description that he says happens. If that's how it is in the Old Testament, listen to what he says in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? These are descriptions of somebody who has willfully turned away, who have said, I reject Jesus' sacrifice, trampled underfoot the Son of God. Jesus isn't sacred and worthy of respect and honor and reverence. He's worse than the garbage at the landfill. And I'm going to trample on him because I don't care. He's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Profane is to treat as common that which is holy. So it's saying that the blood of Jesus that was shed, it's not holy or unique. It's common. It's defiled. It's unclean and worthless. Remember, the author has been explaining the supremacy of Jesus, and now he's saying the person who does this, who willfully rejects Jesus' sacrifice, is basically trampling that underfoot and calling his blood worthless. His death wasn't unique. It was just like the death of any other man. They've outraged the spirit of grace by slapping the Holy Spirit in the face by rejecting the grace that is freely offered. This is a willful, blatant rejection of Jesus. It might sound like Hebrews 6, right? That we heard 
back in the summer last year. He's grouping people who continued deliberately in with the apostates in chapter 6. Continued deliberate sin by someone who has received the truth carries the same punishment as that apostate. There is no sacrifice other than Jesus. Do you feel the weight of this? Does your skin crawl when I read those things? Trampling underfoot the blood of, or the person of Jesus? Treating as common and unclean his blood? Now that the charges have been leveled against the accused, it's time for him to receive his sentence. And we see that in 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This quotes Deuteronomy 32, a chapter from which we heard this morning during our time of confession. God is the rightful judge of all humanity. Apart from his mercy, because of sin, we all stand condemned before him. If you reject the only sacrifice that he offers, you will face his wrath personally. Judgment is the only outcome for those who reject Jesus' sacrifice. This should put a holy fear in us. What are you afraid of? You may be afraid of spiders. Some of you might be afraid of heights. Other things like losing your job or even being afraid of losing a loved one. But there's nothing in the entire cosmos that should put more fear in us than the thought of standing before God in judgment without Jesus having nothing to shield us from his wrath. Facing the judgment of a holy God is literally the most scariest thing. I know that's a double superlative, but it is the most scariest thing imaginable. The author has given a similar warning to his audience in in chapter 6 for apostasy. And I encourage you to re-listen to Pastor Carl's message from that. But like he did with the stern warning in chapter 6, the author will follow this up with a kind of an encouraging, warmer word to his audience. So come next week to hear that about how they have shown fruit of authentic faith. But for this week, we end with verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The scary, sobering image of the judgment of God. So what do we do with this passage? For believers, if you're listening, whoop, if you're listening to this this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, I have four things that I want us to think about. The first, this is going to be uncomfortable. Look regularly in the mirror before you look out the window. Too often we can see passages like this and immediately think, "Whew, I'm glad that's not me. I know someone else who could really use this message though. Or, well, I'm not there, so it doesn't really apply to me. I think sometimes we like the idea of an angry God a little too much in the sense that 
Yes, God's judgment is a real thing, but we often think of that in terms of him sending that judgment out to people who are not yet believers because of their sin. Is sin disgusting to God? Yes. But that disgust and that disease isn't just in the world around us. It lurks within each of us. This passage isn't directed to people out there. This passage this morning is addressed to people who have heard the truth of the gospel. That's us. If we show no real signs of spiritual life, if our actions are devoid, if we relish in continually, deliberately sinning high-handedly against God, then that should cause us to examine what we believe. If our actions stem from our belief and our actions are not reflecting the transformation that comes through the gospel, then we need to look in the mirror and ask God to reveal to us what are we believing. Before we move too quickly and dismiss applying this to our own lives, let's heed the warning and look at ourselves first. So look in the mirror before you look out the window. Second, examine your attitude towards sin in your life. Are you nurturing sin in your life and using God's grace as an excuse to keep sinning? God's grace is big. It's not that big of a deal. Paul says in Romans 6, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. You're dead to sin. Why live in it any longer? So are you nurturing sin in your life? Or are you increasingly disgusted by the sin you see in your life? Calling it what it is. That's what confession is. Calling it what it is. And turning away from it. The believer who is growing in Christ should increasingly despise sin in his or her life. Confess it and repent from it. If we're increasingly comfortable by the sin in our lives, we may need to question the authenticity of our faith. So how do you respond when sin is brought out in your life? When you find out that you are sinning or when you know that you are sinning? I think that there's four typical human responses to sin. One is hiding. You don't tell anyone. You try to get it together yourself. Sin thrives in the dark, but shrivels with confession. So one is hiding. Another one is defensiveness. You point out the sin in others, listing excuses. You have an increased emotional response when somebody says, hey, I've noticed this. Like, uh, and you're like, that's not me. Why, why are you saying that? Have you seen what this person has done? Hiding, defensiveness, redefining sin. And I'm not just talking about what the world does with redefining sin. I'm talking about what we do with redefining sin. Uh, It's not that big of a deal for me to forsake the gathering. I've got other stuff going on. It's fine. I redefine that. It's not really sin. Or maybe instead of conforming our minds to God's word, we really like conforming our minds to our preferred political party. We hide, we're defensive, we redefine sin. Sometimes we're just indifferent. I don't care. 
it's not that big of a deal. None of these responses are the response of a healthy believer. According to the Bible, there are two possible responses to sin being revealed. Repentance and hardening of your heart. And here's a hard truth. You cannot, I cannot accurately identify all the sin in my life because part of sin is that it is self-deceiving. I can make up all the excuses of why what I'm doing isn't sin. I need other people in my life, other believers, to help me see that. This is one of the reasons why this warning comes on the heels of him saying, do not forsake the gathering together. Do you realize that the church discipline process in Matthew 18 is to kind of reveal whether somebody is repentant or whether they are hardening their heart? There are two responses. So how are you examining your attitude towards sin in your life? You need others. And that's point number three if you're a follower of Jesus. Commit to cultivating growth regularly together. Commit to cultivating that growth together. One of the best ways to safeguard against the warning in our passage today is to do the let us practices that we've heard over the last three weeks. Let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. These are the fruits of belief. They're actions stemming from a transformed heart. But just like in a garden, there can be pests that eat away at those fruit. And I think for us this morning, one of those pests that can kill the fruit is apathy. Apathy is an accumulation of choices that draws you away from the people of God in this context. It's too much work. I have other things going on. People are too difficult. I can get what I need spiritually with just me and my Bible. I don't really care anymore. All of those things that Pastor Glenn talked about last week, those are choices that we make that draw us away from the people of God and then put us in a spiritually dangerous place. Yes, you can grow spiritually to an extent on your own, but you cannot fulfill the one another's that are commanded in Scripture. Love one another. How do you do that if you're by yourself? Bear one another's burdens. How are you doing that if you're not in a relationship with other believers? The solution to spiritual apathy isn't just more activity for activity's sake. The solution to spiritual apathy is gospel-centered relationships within the church. Regularly reminding one another of the gospel, of our sin, of our need for grace, of that provision of grace in Jesus Christ. It's an embedding of the gospel in our minds and our hearts. It's believing with the depths, within the depths of our souls that Jesus' sacrifice is beautiful. We need one another to persevere in our faith. Our behaviors reveal what we love. So point number four, if you're a follower of Jesus, let the scariness 
of God's judgment deepen your worship of Jesus. Let the fearful picture of God's judgment amplify your worship of Jesus because He is our sacrifice. Dwell on what we deserve versus what we received. That deepens our worship, that we understand that without Jesus, without Jesus' sacrifice, we are sunk. We are going to be blown up, and we are going to receive the, the wrath of God towards our sin. But God, He sent Jesus. And I think the other thing that that does, as we let that sink into our own hearts, it also gives us our motivation for sharing that message with others. People don't yet know Jesus, all, all in our circles of influence. And God has put you there. God has put me there to share the message of Jesus' sacrifice with them. This morning, if you need to confess your sin to someone, or if you need prayer because you're struggling with apathy, or you need to... You just need prayer for encouragement to continue persevering in your faith. We'll have some elders up here at the end of the service, so please come pray with one of them. If you're listening to this this morning and you haven't given your life to Jesus, you haven't put your faith in Him, the reality, as we've seen in the passage this morning, God's holy judgment toward those who reject Jesus is real. It's coming, and it is absolutely terrifying. As Pastor Carl said, if God was only holy, all any of us would know would be His wrath and judgment, and justifiably so. But God's love, His mercy, and His grace are equally as real. And God Himself has provided the only escape from His judgment, and that is Jesus Christ. There is one way to be saved, and it's Jesus there is one sacrifice that has been offered to give you right standing before a holy God, and that's Jesus. You may be banking on having a shield of being a good person or giving money to charity or volunteering when you stand before God. It will burn that up in an instant. Jesus offers his, himself his very self to you this morning. He's inviting you to receive the message of who he is and what he's done, to put your faith in him, to repent from your sin, to turn towards him in belief. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But through the person and work of Jesus, we can run into the loving arms of the very same God and be saved. If you haven't responded to this good news through repentance, faith, and belief. My encouragement to you is that of the Grail Knight. Choose wisely. Come talk to one of the elders at the end of the service. Let's pray this morning. God, we come before you uh, this morning on our faces. Humble. God, with a healthy fear of understanding what we deserve. And God, I pray for all of us this morning that we would not look in this 
uh, in the application of this and other people, that we would start, that your spirit would start in each of us. God, that we would look inside ourselves, that we would evaluate what we think, how, what our attitude towards sin is in our life, to see if we're continually, deliberately sinning and rejecting Jesus' sacrifice, denying what he's done, or if we're repenting, if we're calling sin, sin, if we're confessing that sin with one another, if we're growing together, if we're walking together in persevering faith. God, I pray that you would work in a mighty way in each of us to, to help us wrestle with those things this morning, God. And I pray that if there's anybody here listening to this now, online later, who doesn't yet know you, who hasn't responded to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, that they would run to him, that they would put their faith in him and through his sacrifice, never have to face the judgment that is coming. God, we thank you for your mercy. I pray that you would awaken us as a church to your gospel. Make us ready for your coming. Remove our apathy and indifference. Help us persevere. God, help us be healthy followers of Jesus who are producing healthy fruit. God, help us to share this message with the world all the more as we see this day drawing near. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.